Chapter 36, Partridge Creek. When he finally got up, Bergeron was already climbing the old stairs again, replicating the sound we had heard earlier. Very well, the community will be waiting for us, he announced as he reached the beds. And a good day to you too, Mr. Bergeron, King teased. As you can see, you're right about the weather. It's a bloody good thing we didn't make a bet, isn't it? Andrew Bergeron frowned, then turned to the two of us. You, take your team to the port, he ordered Lucy. The boat leaves in 45 minutes. On the way, tame the lynx, he finished pointing his thumb at King, already turning his back on us and returning to the staircase. Jacob did nothing but grunt at that remark. Paying no more attention to the doctor's personal spats, we finished folding our quilt and went down the steps, letting King lead the way. As we reached the reception desk, we saw Henry preparing to pay for our stay, but the biomedical doctor hurried to stop him. Oh no, no, Mr. Bergeron, how could I do something like this? Allow me. And with that, he threw a wad of bills on the counter. I believe this was the first time I saw Nelly Lenoir raise her eyes. Wide-eyed with surprise, she touched her lips before flipping through the bundle, doing so again as she fumbled while counting. Okay, we can go now, he said with a wide, almost unnatural smile. Despite the strangeness of the fact, the Canadian was pleased with King's kindness, and so was the receptionist. With a brief goodbye, we left the Lavoyer Inn, heading for the stretch of the Yukon River where a catamaran-style boat was waiting for us. We exited a cab at the harbor entrance, not without King throwing the equivalent of a month's walk at the driver, and headed for the boat at a fast trot. The huge craft was as white as pure snow, enough to hurt the retina of anyone who persisted in admiring the reflected glare. We then boarded the raft, with enough time to sit at the end of the platform and watch the huge flow of people that would accompany us for the first few kilometers of the trip. Soon there were people of the most varied races and cultures around us, all confined in their open rectangle, without the slightest protection from the weather. At exactly the end of the 45 minutes mentioned by Andre, we heard a huge engine sounding in low vibration and the propeller below our platform turning quietly. In a few minutes, the captain's maneuver took us to the center of the Yukon stream, where it was possible to save some fuel and let the force of the water propel us. With the calmness of the drifting trip, we made our way through the small crowd that gathered on the platform, chatting, taking pictures and laughing. At the end of an endless session of saying excuse me and sorry, we reached the cockpit where a woman, probably middle-aged, with a muscular build and a serious face, was skillfully handling the helm. Our captain's cabin was raised room just above the whole edge with a huge reinforced acrylic display. The structure, one of the closest passengers informed me, maintained an accessible appearance of her authority but without leaving her on the same level. Below her feet, the vessel curved to show the interior of the river. Through another acrylic plate, this one guarding the underside of the boat, we could see the stream flowing hard, foaming, shaking with it the few trout that challenged its power. The sight was a delight, and along with socializing with other passengers, or whatever you call the strange human interaction we were subjected to, it would be our distraction on the long journey to Partridge Creek. Starting at Lubbock Lake, the Yukon River widens into a large pocket and then winds its way inland again before reaching anywhere recognizable as modern civilization. After countless hours of the gentle rocking of our platform, we docked at the Carmacks, 
where we said goodbye to half of our fellow passengers with no more than 14 people left, including ourselves. The river still held the same name until Pelly Crossing, the next stop, where three more came down. Finally, we arrived in a stable weather at Stewart Crossing, where the last seven descended, leaving only the four of us in the care of our captain. Here, too, we changed course, heading for the river named after the crossing. We were much closer now, after nearly 12 hours of exposure and unpleasant social interactions. At the end of the trip, our captain spoke up over the radio, transmitting her voice to powerful speakers installed at the angles of the platform. Lester, just ahead! Disembark immediately! said the authoritative voice. Picking up our rucksacks from the wooden floor covering the deck, we made our way to the staircase that now connected to the shores at the command of a button in the cabin. We would have said goodbye to our captain, but she never looked back. With the same serious look as before, she maneuvered her huge floating rectangle and proceeded with this engineering marvel along the same path we had traveled to get here. Our appearance at this point was almost comical. In view of the low temperatures we faced on the trip, especially after Pally Crossing, we took out our packs, the huge, triple-layered jackets that Bergeron had recommended. The garment was a curiosity in itself, how it was able to be compressed to a portable size without retaining its shape. As soon as the suitcase was open, the fabric would straighten its fibers again and swell once more. And so, with our body circumference more than tripled, we turned toward the interior of the region where the creature had been sighted. To our left flowed a timid watercourse, so narrow and weak that it didn't even produce any sound, especially with the massive steward rivaling it. This way, said Andre Linus, just past the partridge. Saying this, he walked resolutely towards the stream that ran to the left of our current position, advancing as if he were going to cross it on foot. What do you intend to do? Ken asked, alarmed. The same thing I've done now, my left doctor. Holding his coat and putting it back in his backpack, he spun the bundle in the air a few times before throwing it hard over the water. He landed just beyond the shore. Then, stepping into the potter's waters, Bergeron sank his boot first and then let the rest of his legs emerge. Suddenly, he sank to his waist, but for a few steps brought him to the same depth as before, where he could stand with water covering his calves. That's when I realized... Partridge Creek was a smooth watercourse, not because it was slow, but because it was deep. As he reached the other bank, his whole body seemed soaked and his skin regressed to a pale color before he threw his backpack over his back again, hiding his pallor. Very well, who comes now? He challenged us. Among the three of us, Lucy was the first to abandon her shocked expression and imitate the suicidal act. With precision, she put away her coat and threw her backpack over the partridge. He landed next to Bergeron's, who did not hide the admiration on his face. Setting out to cross the stream the Canadian's way, she gasped slightly, trying to finish the process as soon as possible. Reaching the bank where Andrea was waiting, she said with a familiar laugh. I hope you, sir, can light a fire if you don't want to be blamed for us dying of hypothermia. Next to me, Kin was sweating at the mere thought of getting to the water. How about uh, doing it together, Kevin? The invitation seemed more like a way to have someone to hold on to, in case his muscles stiffened. Uh, certainly, Doctor, I begrudgingly replied. With our backpacks towing our thick coats and personal belongings, we spun their weight in the air before launching it. Mine landed close to the water, 
crashing to the short grass on the other side, falling so close to the stream that its fastener dipped with each gulp that a partridge produced. Kings was not as successful and plunged majestically into the deep water. Lucy rushed to thrust her arm into the stream and save it before the flow carried it into the Stuart River, narrowly clutching it. In the background, Jacob was cursing loud enough to be heard above the sound of the river. With a disaster averted, it now remained for us to enter the icy waters of the stream. And how freezing were they! With my first step, I felt the water entering my boots and wrapping my feet in a deadly paralyzing shell. To my right, King screamed in pain as he felt the same sensation. At the next step, my calves disappeared under the surface of the water, and my muscles contracted violently. Finally, the third one took us to Partridge Bat, covering our waist. At this point, Jacob was cursing Bergeron, feeling pain similar only to what Alexander Bozeman had felt. With two more steps, the intense pain eased, and we stepped onto solid ground once more. The cold wind now punished our thin bodies, cutting our skin. You are a doctor, Lucy said, taking the soaked backpack back to Kin. Don't thank me. Jacob lowered his eyes, contemplating the miserable state of his clothes, before reaching us again. The hills ahead of us were green, but of a dark hue, like the plants, like the plants that become their color when brought indoors. With the lack of sunlight combined with the intense cold of the Yukon, the small grasses struggled to grow, not reaching more than half an inch in height. Where do you intend to take us? asked Jacob's trembling voice. First to a fine fire to warm you up. I don't want to go to jail for the death of a tourist. And when do you imagine making such a fire? There's nothing but more and more hills, as far as the eye can see. With a slightly ironic laugh, Bergeron corrected Keen. Oh boy, learn to see beyond the obvious. Then walking to the next ridge, he stopped at his step, stretching his arms out to the side so that we wouldn't fall. Hidden from the prying eyes of passers-by, with a tiny shepherd's village bearing the depression in the ground. This is where I imagined doing it, Andrew teased. Carefully, we descended the slope that was about 20 feet deep, leaning our weight on each rock that supported us until we were low enough to jump without breaking a bone. Still soaked and weak from the walking, we struggled to complete this further stage of the mission, finally falling to the ground without incident. The view of the village in front of us was bleak. Raw, stacked wooden houses clustered in that perfect circle of earth and ice. Through the logs that formed the walls, it was possible to see the eyes of the local inhabitants peering through the huge gaps that were left. In silence, Andrew walked to the center of the village, followed by eyes that changed the walls to see him. Stalling his pace, he called out an Athabascan greeting, leaving on his face a smile of anticipation of what was to come. Almost immediately, he was surrounded by a flood of people coming out of the houses, happy to see him. Still in the language of the north, they welcomed him. Children jumped around him, wearing a miniature of the huge sweater he was wearing. One by one, the villagers then turned their attention to us, who were still waiting at the village entrance. Switching sharply to English, Bergeron made the introductions. This is Kevin and Lucy Lane, and Dr. Jacob Keane, the team of researchers who welcomed me to New Haven. Most eyes remained as suspicious as before, not believing that we had crossed such distance just to do research. Taking a step forward, King spoke in one of the Athabascan languages, singing a long sentence that we did not understand. The audience's reaction was immediate. Changing the look on their faces, we now saw more smile and approving looks from the others. What did you say, Doctor? Lucy asked him. 
that they came to see their wisdom, to understand their custom and to hear their stories. That's the truth, isn't it? Maintaining its flowing form, the crowd hurled itself upon Keen, bringing him and Bergeron with them into the village. Alone, Lucy and I were left in the cold outside of the border that surrounded the place. How on earth can be so popular? I asked with an exasperated sigh. Not for the right motivation, that's obvious, Lucy replied. We had to remain alone behind a crowd of people who were returning to the village's interior, two lonely spots in a vast green and white expanse. When we passed the edge of the first houses, we spotted a site where most of the inhabitants were gathered around a small fire. The lack of preparations made it clear that nobody was expecting us that day, especially us, the so-called research team. The size of the fire was appropriate for only two or three people to warm themselves, but now more than 40 were gathered around the tiny heat source and its original owner had already been swallowed up by the sea of people. After rows and rows of villages, in a small circle where the fire was slowly fed pieces of wood occasionally thrown by someone, we could see Andrew Bergeron sitting in a very rustic and brutal-looking chair. In the first row of the assembly, Jacob King kept his face fixed on Bergeron's, often adjusting the position of his glasses to pretend he was paying attention. In his native tongue, the Canadian gave a speech to the people, gesticulating with pleasure as he ex explained, as we later learned, what his life had been like when in America. His manner was animated and grand, as if being surrounded by an audience pleased his ego. Of course, all that attendance was also his family, but I am afraid to tell that I had already judged him in my heart. As I considered these feelings, I remembered the situation in which Lucy and I found ourselves. The winds were struggling to get into the, this depression, particularly to get through the barrier of huts. Yet, a slight breeze reached us at this point, enveloping our wet bodies and cooling our muscles. I felt my heart beat faster in an attempt to pump the blood more quickly and warm myself as much as possible. Eventually, our bodies are more efficient than those of the Steposaurus, and I would not die. Not right away, that is. Running his eyes over the people around him, Andrew sat them on us and no longer moved them. With a gesture, he invited us to come closer, which we desperately accepted. The good people of his village were also willing to give us passage, each half the large circle moving to one side, looking at us with curiosity. These people were used to the intense cold of the region, and their limbs were strong and muscular. All adjectives that did not fit the two pale teenagers who were now crossing the midst. In silence, they waited for us to reach the smaller circle where Bergeron had an outstretched hand, inviting us to sit next to Kim. The fire was now twice the original size, and we had to step back to keep distance from its glowing embers. Its heat radiated on us and our wet clothes, maintaining our hope that we would not freeze to death. Not on a mission where the creature should be able to do so, at least. More than temperature, however, the warmth of a campfire is capable of soothing the weary traveller, which was precisely our current experience. Maintaining his friendly smile, Bergeron went on giving his lecture. Rising from his chair, he set it aside and erected his body in front of the glow of the flames. The light of the fire formed at his feet an imposing, shimmering shadow, which silenced the voices of those closest and fascinated those farthest away. His words were still in the, his Athabascan language, but Jacob was kind enough to translate them. First sighted by the Dean Indians, he translated what the Canadian was saying. This animal has always been feared for its strength and uh, ferocity. A horn on its mouth 
a hornet's muzzle is its main weapon, used to charge its prey with a gnome's fury, which it throws to the ground with a violent swipe, looking at it immediately afterwards. Uh, pardon me, devouring it immediately afterwards. The two verbs sound similar. It is a fur-covered animal, like a white boar, and much like it, it is black as night. It measures 50 feet and has a voracious appetite for travelers lost in the white expanses of snow. When not hunting our kind, the monsters' talks are heard, even decimating them when the spirit of war is weak and does not motivate us to fight. Eventually, our friend from the Dean people joined us the last time the beast dared to attack us, and with their support, we brought upon it the death it intended to bring upon us. At this public intimation, all the people shouted in unison, celebrating a victory that their eyes had never seen. And of course, a remarkably positive public, Kin said, rubbing his sore ear. We felt at this point that we were slowly drying and the flames were warming us more effectively. Also, with the end of the Bergeron's talk, the assembly slowly dissolved, each returning to their log cabin. Fifty feet? Lucy whispered. That's more than fifteen meters. Do you think it's possible for an animal to get to such a size here? It is a well-established fact that animals tend to be smaller in colder climates and on islands, where a reduced amount of food forces them to shrink over many generations. That is, if the species survives that long in the first place. There were, however, a number of factors that influenced this equation, especially the availability of resources. Although it is now a white desert, the Arctic had been occupied by dinosaurs in its distant past, and even the Antarctic was once green, as shown by countless fossils of cycads and huge herbivores. It shouldn't be totally impossible, I replied. There are fossils of the Splatosaurus, Albertosaurus, and Acrocanthosaurus in Canada. Even to the north in the Arctic, fossils of Nanunchosaurus, a six-meter-long carnivore, had been found. What bothers me most, though, is the presence of a nasal horn. This description matches that of an abelosaurid, but there is no record of any genus that reached these proportions. Of course there are no records, King remarked scornfully. These legends are a silly exaggeration, something coming from the human mind, especially when corrupted by pride. How can you be so sure? Lucy asked firmly. It's not as if all the creatures we have encountered so far have been thoroughly studied. They all inhabited a remote zone, Lucy, and only then did a human population develop in their vicinity. Here, they are all sayers about the animal. This has happened several times before, you know. The legends of the Kraken are based on sightings of giant or colossal squids, the latter reaching up to 40 meters in length. The folktale, however, speaks of monstrous mollusks, much larger than the vassals they grabbed, then carrying them to Davy Jones' locker. If this is so, your theory will soon be proven, Doctor. What do you mean? Tomorrow we'll cross Patridge Creek, where a tribe of the Dean people have settled. Finally landed in White Horse. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> his flight had been painful, as indeed was any experience at his age. The seats were also part of the torture. Tight and uncomfortable, they seemed to be made for the stereotype their society considered ideal. A slender body without folds of skin or fat, 
preferably anorexic. Keen was one of those who seemed to support this concept, humiliating him whenever possible. Countless times he had felt his hands burning, wanting to close around the scoundrel's throat, but he had been able to control his spirits. Then one day, a good friend appeared, someone who listened to him openly and sincerely enjoyed spending time with him. Looking around, he could now see the other passengers heading down the aisle towards the door, but his dear friend was nowhere to be seen. The seat next to him remained empty, just as he wanted it. At Tweed in New Haven, he had bought two tickets, just so that no one could take Bulger on seat. Lifting his eyes once more, he realized that he was alone, and then he also realized that this was his way of life. Frederick Frost stood leaning on the back of the seats approaching the exit. The Yukon cold hit him at this moment, and he remembered that his usual suit would not be enough here. It would be a shame, but he would have to cover up the garment that made him proud. Still shaking his head and walking down the stairs, he made his way to the landing strip, looking around to locate himself. There wasn't much difference between the brown and the tweed. The runaway led to the same maze of coffee shops set as traps for those who would enter the place. But Frost had no desire to eat anything now. All that mattered was to catch a certain ferry, which would take him to Partridge Creek and settle this matter that had been plaguing him for months. Leaving the brown through the front door, he then came upon the main thoroughfare of White Horse, lined with vehicles, souvenir stores, and restaurants. But there weren't many hotels. In fact, there was only a single inn near the Brown Airport, a strange construction in the shape of a Esclaim Triangle, with a wooden sign hanging from Aaron chains. The sign read, Lavoyer Inn. It was not the most exquisite place he had ever set foot in, but the one that would save him the most effort. Pushing at the door, he observed that it would not budge, until his weak eyes noticed a padlock shut on the links of another chain, as thick as the one holding the sign. A closed hotel. Charming, thought Frederick. What else would happen to eliminate a little chair he had left? On the sidewalk next to him, passed by a gentleman in an overcoat, who was walking gracefully through the area. Excuse me, sir, Frost asked. Stopping suddenly, the man opened his curious eyes to the stranger who approached him. Yes, sir? Perhaps you know when this hotel opens. Glancing at the Lavoyer Inn sign, the wanderer sighed, then looked down. I'm afraid it won't open anymore, he said with his hand on his chest. An economic crisis, possibly? Something much worse. You see... There was only one person who worked at the livery. Nella Lenore was her name. Yesterday afternoon, young Nella was found dead on the reception counter with a hideous smile on her face. Her mother, the owner of the hotel, could not bear the pain and closed the establishment. I haven't heard from Madame Lenore since then either. I see. Thank you, sir. With a polite farewell gesture, the stranger left him alone again. Once again, late, Ross said to himself.